Maybe. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to the 10th anniversary of Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. Coming up, Wally Funk's race for space is almost won. Juice gets set for Jupiter and we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 15 mission to the moon. Now, one of the guests on our first podcast was the BBC's science and space correspondent Jonathan Amos. And he's back. Welcome, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, well... You've... You have been back since, though, haven't you? I have. Been... Yeah, yes, yeah. No, <laughs> I have done it. I have done you guys a couple of times since. Yeah. But yes, historic, wasn't it? Space boffins. <laughs> yes. I know. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to believe that those uh, 10 years have passed. And we thought we'd discuss how space has moved on in 10 years, and particularly in terms of what we covered on that first podcast which is still available isn't it yeah it's on a separate feed so it's on the audio boom feed the audio of space boffins so if you google space boffins you will find it on the audio boom it's it's called space but i didn't really get the hang of, of metadata at this point it's called space boffins podcast one <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we, yeah. we all, we all uh, live and learn, don't we? <laughs> yeah, so we covered uh, the end of the Space Shuttle era, which seems so long ago. The fact that the UK wasn't putting any money into the International Space Station. And we mentioned SpaceX as one to watch. And I guess, at least on that, we were right. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and things have gone really fast uh, as well. I mean, certain things haven't changed in 10 years. You know, it's some things go really, really slow. Other things go at lightning pace, and I think SpaceX is a great example uh, of that. Uh, something like, what is it, 125, 130 launches now uh, with the Falcon 9, landing all of these boosters, these first-stage boosters afterwards. Something like 80 times, I think, they've, they've brought that, uh, that booster back, or the different boosters that they have. And, and now this enormous Starship thing that Elon Musk uh, is building, which I find utterly fascinating, and, and really can't wait to see how that will develop in, well, I mean, I say next few years. Maybe it's the next year that we need to, to concentrate on as they do their first orbital launch, maybe in, in the next few weeks. I mean, that is absolutely extraordinary as, as, a, as a spaceship, as a, as a starship, because it really harks back to what was imagined to be a spaceship back in the 1950s, something that was just one unit i mean i know he's going to stick it at the top of a a rocket but it's it's a self-contained proper proper spaceship yeah it's extraordinary i, I guess from that point of view it, I mean, if you look sort of under the bonnet though at, at this this project the thing that always comes home to me about spacex is is just the way they have recast the conversation completely within the space sector within the space industry every new space company that comes up, that starts, kind of looks at SpaceX, and that's almost their model. You know, we want to be disruptive. We want to move very, very fast. Um, you know, we, we want to do this whole iteration, um, you know, test, fail, test, fail, launch again. Uh, that model that, that they have introduced into the space sector, which before was, was very staid, or now seems very staid, very slow, and, and gives you uh, an enormous rocket that NASA are building that, well, I mean, they haven't even launched it yet. And we were talking about it 10 years ago, just as the shuttle was coming to an end. 
We also discussed whether a certain unassuming former army major, Tim Peake, would ever make it into space. And obviously that turned out reasonably well. But how much do you think has changed in the UK when it comes to space flight within the last decade? Well, a massive amount, actually. I, I went back and found the, <laughs> I found the original episode and I listened to it. Oh, great. And uh, my, my partner in crime on that occasion was David Parker. Yes, yes. Uh, chief, chief executive then of uh, the UK Space Agency, now the director of uh, robotics and, and human spaceflight at the European Space Agency. And we were discussing the size of the UK space sector. And I think the figure that he mentions was a 7.5 billion pounds. That's the the total income that the UK space sector was earning at that time. Um, That's now 16.4. So every couple of years, they do this. uh, It's called the, I think, is it size and health or health and size? It's a survey. Size and health. That's it. Um, And so that has shown just how much the UK space sector has grown in that time. Of course, they set targets back then. You know, they had this goal of reaching 10% of the global market by 2030. And uh, if the report was written now, probably be a B or a B plus, I think. Uh, You know, because we're only still at about 5%. We've fallen back a little bit. You know, one of the the big changes uh, of late, you may have noticed, I don't know if you caught this. We left the European Union. <laughs> and um, Just passed me by. It did it, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, what, well, I mean, that, that has, because of the way the UK, particularly in the space sector, was, was plugged into the European ecosystem, uh, that has for sure had impacts. I mean, we saw in the most recent uh, survey that something like uh, a half of all of respondents said that you know withdrawal uh, from the EU had hit their bottom line. When they look forward, getting on for a half was saying, you know, this was the big challenge. EU exit-related challenges was what they were going to have to deal with in, in the years ahead as they sought to, to expand and succeed. So there are some things going on right now that uh, the, the British government needs to get to grips with. I have to say, it's the European our, our membership of the European Space Agency now is more important than it has ever been, because that is the umbilical cord that keeps us now connected into that ecosystem. Well, let's face it, there are large sums of money. The EU space budget that was recently announced, um, you know, it's fourteen billion euros. That's that's money that. Certain UK companies will still be able to, to bid for contracts against, but in a lot of instances, they won't. So that source of income ha- has gone. And we've got to find new ways, new markets, new, new places uh, to play. I mean, it may turn out brilliantly in the end. I don't know. Um, but certainly there are some local difficulties that need to be got over uh, right now as, as the UK space industry seeks to move forward. But yeah, B, B+. Plus, um, there's some really exciting stuff going on in the country at the moment. When I look at the the young companies that are coming through, the things that they're trying to do with their small satellites, their little mini constellations, um, it's fabulous. And of course, we've got this prospect now of having launches. Well, in that's the what UK. I wanted to co- wanted yeah. to come on to because there's no way we would have talked about that ten years ago 
you know, the idea of launching from the UK, I mean, that wasn't even a, that wasn't even a question on our minds then. Well, I mean, we were talking about it. Um, oh, for you sure. might have been. Okay, not my mind then. <laughs> it just seemed like fantasy though, didn't it? I mean, yeah, okay, we might have been talking about it in early podcasts, but yeah. was it, re- you know, it was one of these things that they, you know, often people talk about, politicians will talk about, but the chance of it becoming reality just seems very remote. I think that's partly, though, is because what you imagine a spaceport to be, the reality is slightly different. It's Um, changed. Having been, yeah, Yeah. it's changed. And I'm sure you've, you know, having been to Cornwall and the site of where Virgin Orbit is, and in that case, it's just an existing airfield with the infrastructure already there. So it's not like this sort of vision of a sci-fi spaceport with everybody in flying cars you know and flying cars and everything (laughs) it's it's a little bit more realistic than that although it'd be interesting to see what the one in scotland well i I mean just to take scotland as as an example so we've got let's say there are there are three companies in the lead in terms of uk launch for ground launch let's just leave virgin orbit and there air launch system down in Cornwall to the side for one moment. So if you if you think about there's there's Orbex, there's Skyrora, and there's Lockheed Martin who are working with an American launch company. So Skyrora and the American launch company, they're kind of they're rocket in a box concepts. You know, you tip up you tip up with shipping containers. Uh, everything's in the shipping container, including sort of a lot of the, the ground support uh, that you do. And you stick a satellite on the top and you launch it. And so you're right, Sue. It's very different now. We don't need these mammoth complexes uh, to launch satellites. A, because the satellites are tiny compared to what they used to be. I mean, I know we still make big, big satellites, and we'll, we'll talk about one juice uh, a little bit later. But it is, it's a different beast now completely. Um, and that's kind of why I think it's not stupid to talk about launch in the United Kingdom. It does annoy me that it's taken so long. I mean, we were talking about it 10 years ago, and we've, I feel as though we've dragged our feet a little bit on this. You know, when you look, especially to the United States, and I have to say this because of the, the culture that they have there, you look at the number of uh, small launch companies that have established themselves. Uh, you know, we've got Rocket Lab. Uh, it's an American company, New Zealand company, launching out of New Zealand. Um but, you know, Virgin Orbit there is, is, is based there. They're doing launches out of Mojave. SpaceX, SpaceX, you have to kind of include them now in this, in this small satellite domain as well with their transporter series. So we've had two of those this year, one right at the very beginning of the year, which put up was it 144, 145 Oh, and satellites. they've got plans for absolutely yeah. loads. So, and that, by the way, has completely, completely changed the economics of doing space for many companies. You know, I, I regularly speak to chief executives of this and that and all the rest of it. And it does, I say, I've got to say, I've got to say for our listeners, by the way, at this point, that uh, it, it does sound like you're eating a biscuit at times, but that is your chair, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's my springy chair, yes. 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 <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the Amos launch system. It's, <laughs> <laughs> It's a series of springs, basically. <laughs> <laughs> might, might, that might just get me to 100 metres and I'll come back down. Um, 
Oh, I look forward to that. Burn myself up on yeah. re-entry, yes. Um, yeah, um, you've completely destroyed my I'm thoughts. Sorry. No, but yes, no, it's back. So, you, so for example, you know, um, I mean, we've seen this week the Planet Company, uh, who have the largest constellation of Earth observation satellites in orbit today, started by a, a Brit, Will Marshall. The company's going public. They're, I think they're being valued at somewhere around $2 billion dollars something like that. And I, you know, I said to Will, I said, what, what difference does it make now with SpaceX going on these, you know, these sort of almost like a bus to space with huge numbers of other people as well? And he says it's, it's a game changer in terms of what it costs us now to put a satellite uh, in orbit. So yeah, it's, it's fast. It's fast. Oh, you know, it keeps me busy. Yeah. Well, um, before we um, uh, move on to uh, another topic of discussion, I, I am going to mention someone who we talked about in our first podcast, and that's Kate Arkless Gray. He was turning 30 at the time, and her aim was to get into space by the time she was 40, which means she must be 40 <laughs> <laughs> now. And while she hasn't made it into space yet, she wrote a blog about it at spacekate.com, listing what she's accompanied since then, you know, seeing rocket launches, going to NASA and ESA socials, befriending astronauts and, you know, having her voice bounced off the moon. And uh, it made her realise that her ambition had been, you know, was far from a failure because she'd achieved so much. So big shout out to Space Kate there, Kate Arkless Gray. A couple of years ago, we had a force of nature staying in this very house in eastern England. The incredible, the uh, inimitable um, (laughs) Wally Funk. And I'm just thinking about this. I was thinking about this this morning. I was thinking, what was it like when she was staying here? Well, it was extraordinary. Um, I remember having a 20-minute conversation with her, because she's so interested in everything, about the mechanism for how the back door shut. (laughs) (laughs) Because you have to push the lock. It's like one of those standard back doors you push the push the handle up and these bolts come through and mm. i was explaining the entire locking mechanism to her and she was absolutely she, she fascinated wanted to know about by the plumbing the electricity yeah where pipe, the water came in where the water yeah. came in yeah and yeah and i just kept fobbing her off to you didn't i <laughs> yeah, and heading to the fridge for a glass of wine it's, it's give me a rest but i can hardly believe i'm saying this that you know the subject of that book wally funk's race for space I I'm still gobsmacked that it's finally finally happening. She's about to become an astronaut at the age of eighty two. Even though she hates her age being mentioned, that seems to be the only thing that's mentioned <laughs> in all the articles. And she's waited for sixty years. And the plot twist for me was that you know she had a ticket with Virgin Galactic. I went with her to Spaceport America, uh, seeing her go to all these events with Virgin and. You know, she was obviously the pandemic slowed down, you know, progress of quite a few companies for a while. Um, but they'd had several successful test flights. So it was all looking good potentially for next year now, whereas probably it would have been sooner if, if we hadn't had the pandemic. And then along comes Jeff Bezos. It's like enter stage right. Who? You know, because he wasn't on the, the the sort of character list for this from Blue Origin. And he posted this video on Instagram 
with Wally <laughs> offering her a free passenger flight. Free is pretty amazing considering, you know, a bit of auction about, what was that, 80 million or something or 24 million? Anyway, Tw- 28 who cares? million. 28, 28 million. million. I knew there was an eight in there. Yeah. To be honest, to you and I, whether it's 8 million <laughs> or, <laughs> or 28 makes no difference. Yeah. There's no way. Uh, and uh, she accepted a suborbital space alongside him on the 20th of July, which is the anniversary of the moon landings. And here's that moment. You're in zero gravity for four minutes. You come back down. We land gently on the desert surface. We open the hatch and you step outside. What's the first thing you say? I will say, honey, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) Now, we're all looking forward to Wally's flight, of course. And as a treat, and since this is our 10th anniversary, I I thought I'd release some audio that has not been heard before from when I was uh, researching the book and recording her and our conversations. Um, For this particular one, we were at the New Mexico Museum of Space History near Alamogordo, because what really surprised both of us was outside the museum was an exact replica of a Mercury 13 capsule (laughs) and you could go inside it and Wally sort of peeked ahead in and realised that most of the instruments were the same as one of the planes she she flies and used to fly a, a Cessna 172 so both of us climbed inside the cramped capsule and sat in front of the control panel and uh yeah have a listen to this Okay, first you have up here roll, yaw, and pitch. That's what you do with your stick. There mm-hmm. should be a stick here. Okay, then you have your uh, temperature, and then your clock, your, uh, can't read it, the mags, control, control fuel. fuel, and uh, the descent, how fast you're coming down, your airspeed indicator. And I, gosh, it starts at 40 and goes up. I can't read it. What goes up to what? A hundred. It's not much at all. Altimeter. It says alt. Yeah, the altimeter. Then over here you have your cabin pressure. Uh, he must have two. Okay, then you have your humidity percent, oxygen percent, DOT volts, and amp meter, and more, more on the DC volts. And then we have your auto bus and, and the volt switch because we can turn them on and off and use one or the other. And then over here we have, uh, well, all this is cabin pressure, quantity of, of oxygen, emergency uh, switch. Oh, all these switches are torn. <laughs> uh, some of the stuff I can't read anymore. Okay, then, sure, this would probably be the trim. And so then, you could have flown yeah, something like this. Yeah, yes. I'm so, I'm so surprised the instruments are the same instruments that I have at 172. Now, over here... They're just a tad bit different. Uh, I don't know what jet tower and, and the capsule, and these have to have something to do with uh, going off. And uh, retract scope. Uh, so actually, it was just a few knobs and buttons. Right, on the left-hand side. Yeah. Now, uh, don't know what all this means, but obviously they've got a checklist somewhere, and they would be using it. And then I, this might have been glass, but I doubt if it, glass didn't... What wasn't there? This would have shown something about maybe outer space. Mm. Ah, this is so incredible. Time from launch, time to regrade. Ah, this tells you exactly what you need to do. Oh, man, <laughs> this is exciting. <laughs> uh, this would have been a piece of cake for you, wouldn't it? Yeah. 
Now I gotta figure out how to get out here. <laughs> push my butt up. Please. Yeah. <laughs> I'll push your butt up. Oh no, no. Thank, Thank you. you very much. You want some help, honey? Thank you. Oh, thanks. Oh man, to sit in it. <laughs> and I washed it so many times. Oh. Do you, do you think Jeff Bezos will be pushing a butt out? <laughs> isn't, isn't that great? Isn't that just she, fantastic? A, she is a force of nature, isn't she? I mean, she's just extraordinary. Oh, and uh, in this battle of the billionaires uh, that is going on, uh, she's kind of a, a shining light. And her story, uh, irrespective of what anybody might might think about the battle of the billionaires, uh, is wonderful. It is fantastic. Uh, now, Sue, you you were the first person to ring Wally to congratulate her. What what was her reaction? Well, to be honest, she was a bit dazed and confused because partly because I'd called her in the morning, you know, with the time difference from the UK, but also she seemed to think that it was going to be released a little bit later. So she was like, "What?" It up, and the, one of the first things she said to me was. Did they use my real name? Did they? Because she hates, you know, anyone using her Mary Wallace funk. And I said, no, no, it's all right. It says Wally. It says Wally. And she said, that's good. And then it was like, did they say my age? And I thought, I said, ah, they might have done. You know, so well, the headlines that say oldest woman to go into space. Yeah. yeah oldest thought, ever astronaut. Yeah, so I, you know, I had to fob that one off a little bit. And, uh, and then she said, did they say I'm from Taos, New Mexico? She's so proud of her, her sort of hometown. And, and, and then once you know we, we we got through that, I don't th- I can't quite recall who who was loudest. We were both two very loud women going. This is great. This is great. She, yeah. And and my favourite line that she said to me was, "I've waited a lifetime, honey. Or I've waited a lifetime for this, honey." I and mean, she has. I must admit, I was very confident about her going up until the pandemic happened, and that. For me, with everything, I thought, oh, man, oh, this is it. So, yes, it, it, uh, I've, it's probably the best news I've heard since the pandemic started, quite frankly. But you, you, you talk about uh, what has changed in the last 10 years. I, you know, if you go back 10 years, I would have said, oh, well, we'll be doing suborbital space tourism very soon. Mm. And 10 years later, we're still really not doing commercial suborbital. Um, it's... We're on the cusp of it now, yeah. clearly, uh, because Bezos has, has got his his new Shepard vehicle, and and Branson is is probably next year going to start taking the first commercial customers on his Unity uh, rocket plane. But you know, if you ten years ago, you would have said, yeah, yeah, next couple of years, three years, whatever. Of course, then we had the the accident in 2014 where yeah. Virgin lost uh, one of their planes. That certainly put everything back. And a pilot uh, as well. Um, So, yeah, when I said that, you know, things have gone very, very fast, this probably is a sector in which things have gone very, very slowly indeed. You know, the last space tourists, well, they were the ones that went to the, you know, and they were billionaires, you know, multimillionaires who went to the space station. That all ceased in 2009, Um, you know, because of the shuttle meant that, you know, the spaces on the Soyuz became... Essentially unavailable to, uh, to to the Russian space agency to to sell beyond uh, the Americans, and 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 yeah, we've been waiting ten, eleven, twelve years now for this moment, and and finally it is here. 
Yeah. It, it's still quite. I mean, we we don't know a huge amount about the. I guess this is the the nature of private space. We don't know all the details about this launch system or what's going to happen or you know the, the the regular price for people on it, how regular he's going to launch or anything much really. That, do that, we? That, it's yeah. not. It's just. It's not. I suppose we're so used to space being in the public domain that we're entering a whole new era here where it, everything's you know almost behind a, a wall or within a, within a box like like organizations like uh, well apple for example where you you never get a quote from anyone that, I, that was brought home to me uh, i think when i attended the the launch of the test planet finder at kennedy a, a few years ago and that launch was managed by spacex it was going up on a, a falcon 9 and there was a delay and we were in the Kennedy Press Center. The SpaceX people were sitting there at the desk. You'll, you'll know the desk that you go up to, to, to ask questions. And in the past, if it were a, 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 a like a, a NASA, you know, full on NASA event, the information would be there and it would come straight to you. Now we kind of, we have this, it's a different culture that certainly I, you know, I grew up with and got used to where the information is not forthcoming in the way that it, that it used to. And we're going to have to get used to it because more and more of this is going to go into uh, the private sector and be managed in the private sector. I mean, all kudos actually to Sarah Crudus, the space broadcaster, because she, when we had her on the podcast quite a few years back, I mean, she's been, again, she's been on several times as well. I remember her saying very early on, before it was sort of fashionable, that if anyone was going to do it and do it first, she said it was Bezos and Blue Origin. And she actually said something along the lines of, and when they do it, it will come out of the blue and it will just be fully formed and they won't fold anybody. And she was absolutely sort of spot on. Yeah, it comes out of the blue on Instagram. It's <laughs> amazing. I mean, it, it's amazing. Do, yeah. do you think Jeff Bezos knows what he's letting himself in for? With with Wally Funk. Well, his his whole approach, of course, is well with Wally Funk. Yes, I think he, uh, he certainly knows now. I think you know, if he didn't know before, he knows now. He seemed uh, genuinely fond of her, though. On that, yes. On that. You well, know, who wouldn't be? Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't well, be, that's I true. Think, yeah, you know, she's she's yeah, she's uh, a, she's everybody a you hear talk about her. Uh, you know, the, they're just in awe. They're amazed by her. So that, that's incredible. As to Bezos himself, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, he's a total geek. Um, he's, he's stepped back from, from running his retail empire pretty much so he can just do his hobby now of Blue Origin. Blue Origin have been working in the background. That's the kind of the way they did it. They didn't make any noise. You know, if you want to compare Branson and Bezos, that's the difference um, uh, between the two of them. You know, Branson has been talking nonstop about Virgin Galactic for the better part of two decades. Uh, Bezos, you rarely hear speak. And he's got these projects, these enormous rockets that he's building as well. New Glenn, um, New Armstrong, and uh, there's another one as well, which I forget what it's called. But I think there's, there's monster rockets coming, but he doesn't really talk about them. You don't see pictures from inside the factory uh, there in Florida. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. I'm used to the the old factory tour, you know. That's yeah. yes, you know, same with that. Yeah, same yeah. with us. We've yeah, the, sort of the I line th of journalists as we're led around the factory. Um, yeah. I think the yeah. main thing though with for the flight is 
getting Wally to keep her seatbelt in on. Because <laughs> if anyone who's read the book will understand, I basically spent most of my time with her in a car going around the States saying, put your seatbelt on, please put your seatbelt on. She'll want to drive. That's She'll the want thing, to drive yeah. it. She'll want to, she won't put her seatbelt on. She, also, she did say to me on the phone, she said, they told me I can't take my camera because that's the other thing. Wally always takes photos everywhere she she goes on a on a really old digital camera from like the 1990s but i think that's probably i did say to alert that's good you can they've they've got someone in there taking the professional you know photography i said you know just enjoy it just just yeah i'm sure they'll give her a picture Uh, yes (laughs) yeah yeah bless her yeah that's that's absolutely true and if you know if you're listening to this podcast and you've never seen a rocket launch and you're going to see a rocket launch, for goodness sake, don't use your camera. Watch yes. it. Yeah. Feel yeah. it. Best advice Just I've had as well. Take it, take it yeah. in. Don't yeah. get that wretched phone out of your pocket no. because no. that is not why you're there. This is Space Boffins. Do get in touch on Facebook or Twitter. You can also email us at podcast at spaceboffins.com, which apparently works, mm-hmm. or info at boffinmedia.co.uk. If you're finding us for the first time, do follow the podcast, check out our uh, pretty impressive back catalogue and uh, maybe write a review. Okay, moving on now. Uh, Next year, the European Space Agency, ESA, will be sending a spacecraft towards Jupiter and three of its moons. The Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, or JUICE, is currently undergoing thermal testing at the space agency's STEC facility in the Netherlands and has several months of further testing elsewhere in Europe ahead before going to the launch pad. JUICE will study not only the gas giant itself, but three of its icy moons. They are Callisto, Europa and Ganymede. Well, I spoke to Olivier Vitas, ESA's project scientist for the JUICE mission, about the spacecraft and those intriguing destinations. The 10 instruments, they are there to study um, a lot about those worlds. So the, for the moons, that means the interior, the atmosphere, the surface. For Jupiter, it's the, the atmosphere and the magnetosphere. And the link between the moons and Jupiter with the magnetic field and the gravity. And uh, overall, the main goal is to, is to study the habitability of the icy moon. So in, in another world, do we have a hospitable place for life inside an icy moon around Jupiter? Well, let's let's just hone in then on those icy moons. Europa, Callisto and Ganymede. Paint a picture of each of those moons they are very interesting. If we want to paint the big picture, we will need to add uh, Io, which is the, the closest uh, Galilean moon to Jupiter. So in sequence, we have uh, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. And Io being the closest to, to Jupiter is the most active moon uh, in the system and in the solar system with, uh, with a lot of volcanoes. After you have Europa, which is very interesting because it's supposed to be an active moon. I mean, we we, uh, we see geysers on the surface. We know there is a liquid water underneath the surface. Uh, we know the crust is, is moving. So it's an active world and it's a very interesting target for the habitability question. Then we have Ganymede, which is the biggest uh, moon in uh, Jupiter and in the solar system. So it's a small planet bigger than Mercury. The interesting aspect of Ganymede, it's, it's like uh, there is also a liquid ocean underneath the surface. 
And there is also an internal magnetic field, which is very rare for, for solid bodies. I mean, the other two solid bodies are the Earth, and we are happy to have a magnetic field, and we have also Mercury. And Ganymede is the third solid bodies with an internal field. Then last but not least, we have Callisto, which is much further away from Jupiter, so less active. In fact, in terms of geology, it's a, it's a dead moon. But we still think that uh, there might be liquid ocean underneath the surface. Um, and that's also an interesting moon to study. So the four moons are very different from very active to not active at all from the geological point of view. Three moons possess uh, an internal subsurface ocean. One moon has an internal magnetic field. All the moons are connected to Jupiter with the magnetic field lines. If you want to look for habitability, it's uh, probably Europa and Ganymede. And if we want to look for potential life, it's maybe Europa. So you see, they are all diverse and we are going to explore them. They sound amazing. I mean, lots of people, including myself, have, have always been fascinated by Europa because of the insights that had come from previous missions. So it was perhaps quite a surprise that the focus was also on Ganymede as well. What was it that made Ganymede sort of leap into pole position? Was it that internal magnetic field that makes it so different? Well, as you said, Europa, it's very interesting. Uh, all the people interested in astrobiology, they, they, Europa is their main target for, for many reasons due to the liquid ocean and the, the activity of the moon. So that's the main target if you want to study ast astrobiology in, in the Jupiter system. But the problem of Europa is that it's uh, relatively close to Jupiter. And then in Jupiter, you have a very strong or harsh radiation environment due to the large magnetosphere and magnetic field. And it makes the, the conditions for a spacecraft very difficult when you, when you are at IO and Europa, for example. That means you need to build a spacecraft very resistant, a lot of shielding. And with the JUICE mission, with our budget, our technical uh, capabilities in Europe, uh, we could not afford to, to have a spacecraft going at Europa for to study in detail. So we decided to focus on Ganymede. So the first reason is really technical and budget. But the, the second reason is that Ganymede is very interesting target because uh, it's uh, the biggest moon in the solar system, so a mini planet. There is also a liquid ocean inside, plus the magnetic field, which makes this uh, moon quite interesting. So that's why, uh, because of this interest and this uh, potential for uh, surprising result, I would say, Europe decided to focus on Ganymede. Could any of those moons potentially be habitable, considering that they are moons that are surrounding a gas giant? Well, in fact, we think that uh, Europa is, uh, could be habitable. I mean, they, they, we have the interesting ingredient. We have the liquid water. We have the internal heating inside the moon because of the proximity to, to Jupiter and the gravitational uh, pull from, from Jupiter, which makes the moon very active. And at Europa, the, the liquid water is in contact with the rocky core of the, of the moon, which makes a situation relatively similar to what happens in our own ocean. So that's why Europa is, a, is a potentially a, a very interesting uh, habitable place. Ganymede, in principle, uh, less habitable because the, the liquid layer, we think it's in, uh, being sandwiched between two ice layers. And that means there is no the connection with the rock. 
And that makes the habitability question more difficult. But we, we don't know many details. In fact, we just know at Ganymede that there is liquid ocean, but we don't know at which distance from the surface. We don't know how big is this ocean. We don't know the composition. So we have to study that in details before making any conclusion. And for Callisto being much further away from Jupiter, we don't think Callisto should be, should be habitable. But because the, the NASA Galileo mission find potentially a liquid uh, ocean inside, but the, the data is still uh, ambiguous. So the, the, the answer is not yet clear. Uh, we have to see. So that's why we have planned uh, a few, I mean, more than 10 flybys of Callisto with our spacecraft to understand better Callisto. And maybe we'll get interesting surprises from Callisto as well. Yeah, that sounds good. And, and, and possibly in a way, obviously, NASA are going to Europa with the Europa Clipper. Yep, exactly. So there's not going to be a sort of doubling up there. And, and it does leave open this, these, you know, these other incredibly interesting moons. And, and ESA has a very good track record of, I was going to say doing things on the cheap, but no mission is ever cheap, really. Yeah. <laughs> is it? But it's not cheap. <laughs> no, I know. In fact, it's one of, it's one of your more uh, expensive ones, really, isn't it? Or well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. in the, in the, in the science mission, that's the, what we call a, a large class mission. So yeah, that's our most, most expensive mission. <laughs> but it's a, you know, it's a great way to apply what you've got in a smart, way. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and do doing interesting things. A new generation really of, of exploration missions ahead. Which of those moons do you expect to produce the most surprises? Would it be Ganymede? Yeah, or, I would say your... between between Ganymede and Callisto. But Ganymede, since we're the mission, we are going to orbit between nine months and a year around Ganymede at the end of the mission. That will be quite exciting. That's so a we long are going time, really to, yeah. we are going to get really a lot of data from Ganymede. So being uh, being able to acquire a lot of data, we should uh, also get a lot of surprises. So I will put my money on uh, on Ganymede. Olivier Vitas, ESA's project scientist for the JUICE mission. Uh, Jonathan, there's a, a lot of renewed interest in Jupiter. We were talking in the last podcast uh, about the Europa Clipper mission. Um, I mean, it's a fascinating region of the solar system, isn't it? A neglected, probably, for um, for exploration. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I you know the icy moons um, of Jupiter, uh, of Saturn, um, as well the big moons at Saturn, Titan, obviously. You know, we talk about searching for life in the solar system. These are places where, you know, potentially there there really could be uh, life. You know, pr particularly Enceladus and um, and and Europa, there may be life uh, at these places. Uh, I just wish somebody would go to Io. This is my favourite moon. You know, it's covered in volcanoes. Come on, what's not exciting yeah, about a volcano? Yeah, it's straight out of a sci-fi, sci isn't it? I mean, it's straight out of a Star Wars, actually, isn't yes. it? That um, yeah. That scene in the, the kind of lava planet where they're uh, they're fire. Which well, one is it? You will have heard Olivia. He mentions that. Yeah, oh, he's yeah he's obviously quite keen on it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. You the, can there was so. there was discussion for a little while that that Europe might mount a uh, a mission to uh, to Io, but it kind of it fell away. I mean, it, kind of the big. I mean, this mission is for essentially the twenty thirties, isn't it? I mean, I know we're we're 20 what is it 2021 now but you know this is this is a 2030s mission when it you know it's going to get there and get down to business it's the real outer planets you know we want to do a bit of uranus and neptune the moon triton you know that that's kind of 
They're the neglected yeah, parts because of the solar system. We only had yeah. Voyager 2 go past. Yeah. Uh, they're the only, I mean, apart from space telescope images, yeah. we have nothing, do we, from yeah. Uranus or, or Neptune? And if, you, and if you were to ask me my, my moment of the past decade, it probably would have been the flyby of Pluto. It, yeah. Uh, because that was, that was real discovery. I say real discovery. But, you know, it, we, we, get, we got to see something we had never seen before. Yeah. And yeah. we were blown away by what we saw. And I think, you know, given we've only had, you know, the briefest of flybys at Neptune and Uranus, I'm sure if we were to go to those places with the kit that we now have at our disposal, we would see things that, again, that would blow us away. So I'm, I'm really up for getting out there. Uh, something I wanted to ask you about, coming back to our sort of 10th anniversary. So we launched Space Boffins at the first UK space conference in, in 2011. And I remember going to a talk and there were only a few people there. And this was the first thing I tweeted about. I, I'd never tweeted before and I was very excited about tweeting this. Was this attempt to contact the first and only UK built and launched satellite Prospero, which is, which is still in orbit after 50 years and remarkably 10 years on you've just written a story on the bbc <laughs> website about prospero it's come back again yeah well that is because because it's this this iconic object isn't it you know the only country in the world to develop a successful launch system to put satellites in space and then you abandon it in fact you abandon <laughs> it even before the rocket lifts off well let's look ahead uh, 10 years from now a ludicrous question really but why not any predictions uh, we'll be doing sub suborbital space tourism. Oh, that's that's an easy <laughs> one, John. <Come> on. <laughs> what about the moon? Will we actually be on the moon? So I'm quite I'm quite confident uh, that we will see boots uh, on the moon in the coming decade. It will be a great failure, I think, uh, if if we don't. Um, so I'm pretty sure that that will happen. Um, and I'm you know I'm really excited that they've well appear for the moment to have have picked up uh, Elon Musk's offer of using Starship uh, to to go to the moon because I think that really can accelerate matters I think if they were to go down some of the traditional routes that NASA was looking at then this thing might have disappeared off into the distance but he works really fast he's proven that so it should happen I'm still waiting for my beloved Skylon or something similar to that to happen and well, certainly we're going to see that engine. We're going to see that engine work very soon. That yeah, I just saw Sabre actually this, this morning that the UK Space Agency has uh, put some more funding into yeah. reaction engines. Yeah. Who, yeah. who built? I mean, they've kind Skylon. of they've proved all elements of the what is it? The synergistic air breathing rocket engine, Sabre. Um, this this thing that can act a bit like a jet, a bit like a rocket motor. You know, they've, they've kind of proved all of the key elements of the technology. They now just put, need to put the full cycle together, uh, which they're doing at Westcott. They're going to do that at, at Westcott um, on a test stand. And then, and then really it's about, I guess it's about who is going to play the game. So if you look at the, the space ecosystem at the moment, you look in the United States, you see that compared to Europe, they are spending uh, in the public domain five, six, seven times uh, more than, than we, we, we spend in the public domain here in Europe. But in the VC domain, in the private sector, I mean, this, it's, uh, it's a different world completely. Mm. The amount of money that is being pumped into space in the United States compared to, to what it is here. And I'm, you know, I'm sure that if Sabre was a Silicon Valley 
company project, um, it would have been very greatly accelerated and would probably uh, be being attached to vehicles of some kind by now. Well, that would be really quite uh, circular if, if in 10 years' time, considering Skylon was also mentioned on our first podcast in 20, 20 year, if we're still here in 20 years' time. You try to write us into history of space in the UK. History, we do that. <laughs> I personally uh, don't think there will be footsteps on the moon in 10 years' time. I think still think it will take longer than that, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll no, see. I'm, I'm no, like, I'm with Jonathan. I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about this, particularly... On my team. On my yep. team. I am on team, Jonathan. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, it's not like me to be the pessimist on this yeah, one. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely con- yeah. I'm convinced it's, it's going to happen. There's so much impetus behind it. All oh, right. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jonathan Amos, uh, BBC Science Space reporter, correspondent, you know, celebrity in the space world. You know, very narrow. <laughs> <laughs> for joining us on the Space Boffins uh, podcast. See you uh, in... And- um- Ten years <laughs> I hope, no, I hope it'd be a bit sooner than that. I hope it'd be a bit we'll sooner still, than that. Still hopefully we might bump into each other in like as in normal days. Like real people. On a launch, in yeah. a launch or something like that. I can't even, you know, get to America. Well, I'm sure like you guys, you know, we're, we're banned from everywhere. <laughs> even if there wasn't tight security for Blue Origin and its sort of Texas launch with Wally Funk in, uh, on July 20th, I couldn't get, I can't get there. I tell you where it will be. Where? It will be at the launch of a European rover to Mars. Yes, we will definitely. We will definitely meet there. That will be great news. That will be, especially as, as it happens, our son is working, um, as a, an engineering, um, sort of not work experience. It's like a sort of inter- Intern. internship as part as, you know, as university, um, helping to build a Mars rover drill, a prototype ESA rover drill. So wouldn't that be cool if it was at that launch and our son played a tiny, <laughs> tiny role in, uh, in helping that happen? Oh, that would be great. That would be great. Regular listeners will know that one of our favourite astronaut guests on the podcast over the years has been Apollo 15 Command Module pilot Al Warden. I was lucky enough to interview him at length twice before he sadly died last year. Well, this month marks the 50th anniversary of his 1971 mission. Apollo 15 was ambitious and scientifically focused with many firsts for space exploration. From a groundbreaking spacewalk to an excursion in a lunar rover. Well, the commander of Apollo 15 was Dave Scott, alongside him in the lander, Jim Irwin. And we've put together this montage of the whole flight from the perspective of the astronaut who remained in lunar orbit while they were on the moon, Al Warden. Question number five for Al Warden. In lunar orbit, you too carried out geologic observations. For example, you reported cinder cones. Could you discuss this and other observations from 60 miles up? We're probably the most scientific crew that ever flew. Uh, Got tons and tons of data. Our flight became quite famous because we carried the first lunar rover and we carried the first scientific instrument module into lunar orbit. Uh, Yes, the comment on cinder cones was uh, one of uh, color, but we noticed particularly um, on some of the lighted part of the back. So we were pretty scientific in our thinking and in what we wanted to do on the flight. Uh, flying there and coming back, we were pretty good at that too, but when the flight turned out to be pretty almost uh, trouble-free, that made it pretty easy. Fifteen seconds, guidance in There were a great many uh, new thrills for me. And the, the one that was most impressive, though, was uh, the liftoff. Sequence start. Engines on. Five, four, three, two, one. 
All engines running. Launch commit. Liftoff. We have liftoff at 9. Began the flight. I knew that I was going into space after uh, a few years of waiting, training. And we have a roll program. When you get in a spacecraft, it's pretty tiny, and you, and you kind of lose sense of the fact that there's 353 feet of rocket underneath you. So we only had a certain number of orbits we could uh, make before we either have to go to the moon or come back and land. So we got up to about 25, as I recall, 25,500 miles an hour, something like that. You say, okay. There's no way we're going to stop this thing now, so just sit back and relax and enjoy it. And we did. I'm interested in your thoughts as the lander separated. 120 And you see it getting smaller and smaller. 9% fuel. Minus 5. What goes through your mind when, when that's happening? Well... <laughs> Contact. First off, you wish them luck. You know, I hope you land okay. Man. Okay, you student the Falcon is on the plane at Hadley. Roger, Roger, Falcon. The second thought is, gee, I'm glad they've gone, because now I got this place all to myself. On the backside of the moon, I didn't even have to talk to Houston, and that was the best part of the flight. Being alone up there, I, I, it, it opened up a whole universe to me that I was not expecting. And I was so much in awe of looking at the star field out there that uh, that just kind of overwhelmed everything else. I could see roughly uh, 10 million times as many stars as you can through the atmosphere. And it, what that meant was that the star field was just a wash of light. I couldn't pick out an individual star. That was almost overwhelming. looks pretty good. I can manipulate the rover fairly well on a straight line, and I, I can see the base of the front. I see no boulders over there whatsoever. Looks like we'll be able to get around pretty good. It's kind of funny in a way. Everybody's focused on those who land on the moon, but their function is to pick up a rock. Good. This is really a rock and roll ride, isn't it? Never been on a ride like this before. Oh, boy. I'm glad they got this great suspension system on this thing. I guess the most impressive moment I can remember is standing up on uh, Hadley Mountain, Hadley Delta, and looking back at the plane and seeing the limb and the rill and Mount Hadley and uh, the whole big picture in one one swoop. And I think we've got some pictures for you from up there. And I think that was uh, probably the most impressive sight that I've ever seen. Fox, hey, uh, Houston Falcon, how do you read on Fox? Okay, loud and clear, Dave, and your go for liftoff. And I assume you've taken your Explorer hats off and put on your pilot hats. Yes, sir, we sure have. Ready to do some flying. And then it comes to uh, one of the things you've specifically been training for, this deep space mm -hmm. spacewalk, this, this EVA. Mm -hmm. Talk me through that. It's the first time this had ever been done mm -hmm. away from Earth. Absolutely fantastic. You get that moon back there. I can remember looking out the hatch uh, for the first time and seeing, Hey, this is really cool. I'm outside. <laughs> See, I had practiced that whole thing so many times that it was not a big surprise. In fact, it was very easy. And uh, I remember going out there and getting the canister and hooking my wrist tether to it and taking it back to Jim. 
went back out and got the mapping camera and took that back to Jim, went back out a third time, kind of stood up on the outside and looked around, and that was a lot of fun because I could see both ears in the moon. That is really the most unbelievable, remarkable thing. And uh, that, that was a, really a high point of that. But, you know, part of the problem was that I had trained so well on that particular thing that I was done in 40 minutes. Is there anything else you want me to check in the sim bay before we go back in? No, we'd be pleased to have any general comments you had about the sim bay experiments otherwise than what we specifically asked you. You know, I would love to have spent a couple of hours out there just looking around. But I was done in 40 minutes. There was absolutely no reason at all for me to stay out there any longer, so I got back in. Maybe I'll just take another quick check back here and see if I can see anything on the mapping camera. Apollo 15, Houston, over. Hello, Houston. Endeavor's on the way home with a burnt status report for you. Roger, sounds good. Standing by. Out there, you have no sense of speed. You have no sense of direction. Uh, you're you're just floating out there in nothing. Uh, so you don't have a sense of coming home. You're just floating along, but you don't have any sense of direction or speed or anything. Uh, so you could be out there uh, forever just floating around. Um, it, it's it's kind of hard to describe in a way because it's hard to believe that you're really doing it. It's great to be back. We had a great time on the trip. I think we accomplished a lot. Uh, we had a lot of support from a lot of people. And uh, I'd just like to say that we appreciate every bit of it, and we could not have done the mission. We couldn't have gone one step without the support of the many, many thousands of people involved. Thank you very much. The flight of Apollo 15 featuring Command Module Pilot Al Warden. And that feature was lovingly put together by Emily Bird, who's working with the Boffin Media team for a, for a few weeks. And I know we just said goodbye to Jonathan, but you're a bit of an Apollo 15 fan, aren't you? Yeah, Apollo 15 was, was really the first Apollo mission that lodged in my mind, and it blew me away. And the reason it did that was because of Dave Scott and the experiment that he did on the surface of the moon, the equivalence principle, where he dropped a, I think it was a geology hammer and a feather, and they both hit the the dust at the same time. And I remember looking at it thinking, how is that even possible? (laughs) How is that possible, you know? And it's one of those events, one of those moments that has just burnt itself into my mind. And all of the space stuff that I've, I've seen down the years, that's it's a key moment for me really is i think polo 15 16 and 17 they're proper sci-fi stuff you know a rover on the moon color photography and color video from the moon spacewalks in deep space i mean it's extraordinary stuff and then we just lost the momentum after apollo 17 but we'll pick it up again hey richard We'll yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll be back on the moon within years. No, I 10 think years. we'll be back on the moon. I just think Mars. We won't be back on Mars. No, but we, are you changing yourself? No, I your planets say, now. No, you did said I the moon. Not, oh, no. well, that's why. I wondered why I wasn't on Team Jonathan then. <laughs> I, I thought I'd said Mars. No, I thought we w- I, I meant to say we wouldn't be in Mars in 10 years. No, 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 time, we won't be on Mars. Oh, no, we'd definitely be on the moon. Sorry, okay. I'm with you there. Oh, well, right. Oh, okay. We're having a woman on the moon. Come on. Come on. Of course we will. Of course. Team Jonathan's just swelled by one. Okay. <laughs> Phew, thank goodness we got that right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the Space Boffins podcast. Our producer has been Jack Monahan. We'll be back next month with a special astronaut guest. Thanks for listening. Is that because Jonathan wasn't special? <laughs> he's not a special astronaut. He's special, but he's yeah. not a special astronaut. Oh, okay. Not special Wait, enough. He's not yeah. special enough. <laughs>